Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 23 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. You know, in our last episode, we learned from Dr. James Chung about his faith journey, how he determined his call to ministry, ways he cultivates self-awareness, and what his dad taught him about fatherhood. And in this follow-up conversation, we had a chance to learn from Dr. Chung's PhD work studying how different generations view spirituality, as well as the key spiritual questions that are asked. He also discusses ways our youngest generation, both Gen Z and Alpha generations, are impacted by COVID-19 and the increased visibility of racism and xenophobia. He shares some very helpful advice and tips for parents on ways to address racism with our kids. Here's our conversation. So I was really curious about what led you to like focus in on generational views of spirituality. Oh yeah, a great question. Um, it came out of, um, I've always been interested in the, the boomer to Gen X shift um, and back then when Emergent Village was around and um, people were writing about ministry to Xers, as an Xer, I'm deep in the Xer generation. That's right. Yes. Um, and there's yeah. all that. There was a lot of momentum around postmodern ministry and wasn't mean to reach out to postmoderns. Um, so that's probably the initial was attraction. And because I was in campus ministry, you know, campus ministry, you're at the front edge of that cultural shift, right? You're seeing them come. And then it shows up in the church like 10 years later, right? Like you're right there or five, five to 10 years later more fair um so uh i wanted to, when i got a chance to study at fuller i knew i was going to study on leadership development and i sort of landed on postmodern leadership development and that was cool because then i got to, i got to study under brian mclaren and dallas willard and bobby clinton wow. eddie gibbs was my advisor wow. reggie mcneil so you know some leadership types so um when i was doing my research i ran across um the work by strauss and Howe. Uh, called Generations, which was written in 91, and The Fourth Turning, which was written in 97. And they just had, uh, apparently, I didn't never heard of the book before, but in 91, it was a New York Times bestseller, and Al Gore had bought it for every member of Congress. Um, and it started Amazing. to get some notoriety these days, because some people in, in the former administration were using some of the theories. But um, they came up with this thing to say that in American history, there seems to be a four generational cycle that repeats throughout history that has been only broken once uh, during, which was during the civil war, right? In the aftermath of the civil war. Um, and it was such a devastating time in our country that that's sort of, it skipped the generation. But besides that, they sort of trace it all the way back to about, I think 1600s and then work that theory through. And then um, in 91, when this book come out, book, com book came out, the millennials were maybe eight, nine years old at their oldest at the time when the book came out, but they made guesses of what they would be like as adults based on this theory. And they were, you know, as much as some of their data has been like, they've been uh, accused of like smooshing their data into their paradigms. They were spot on about the millennials. They became like the experts of millennials. So they wrote all these other books like millennials risings and other things. And that's sort of when I uh, encountered their work. So I thought, hey, if it had, and that's what they say, history is only so good. Your interpretation of history is only so good as its predictive power, which is like, oh, that's good. Mm. So I thought, I'm wondering if there's something here and spiritually. And part of what they do in this theory is sort of give a, an attempt at an explanation of why a major awakening happens every 80 years. 
right? It's because at that point, the profit generation, which was the boomers, when they're young adults, there's there's this sort of place where that happens in, mm. in this generational constellation. It gets it gets complicated. But so in that, I was like, oh, that's fascinating. So let me work that out. And then they had theories about what each generation contributes. What makes their theories a little more robust is most generational theorists sort of talk about the characterizations of a generation and sort of hold that throughout their lifetime. Whereas these guys will say, no, that's actually not true. These generations go through shifts as they go from childhood to young adulthood to midlife to elder, and they operate in different ways at each of these stages. And then it's the constellation of these. Like right now we have boomer elders, Xer midlifers, millennial young adults, and um, iGen children. That creates a certain constellation, um, which creates then this, these kinds of dynamics in the country. So why they've been in the news lately is back in 91, they predicted the great crisis of 2020. Because this what? would be the crisis era. And they you can look it up. It actually says the great crisis of 2020. And it's uh, they predicted every 80 years is a spiritual awakening. And then every 80 years, there seems to be a secular crisis that mm. the whole country has to mobilize around. Um, and the last one would have been World War II. Uh, and so it's, they said the great crisis of 2020, something that sort of wrecks the whole country, if not the world, that everyone has to rally around while millennial, while the hero generation, the millennials are young adults. And so they've been in the news more lately because they kind of called it. And you're like, that's crazy. Even they always sort of disclaim it. Like within a year or two or three, you know, it's not exactly 2020, but uh, you know, we just lived through it. So it's, it's there. Um, so I just wondered if there was something spiritual there. And that's actually looking at the core contribution that each generation brings. I sort of brought out of that a spiritual question for each generation and started sort of riffing that around. And uh, yeah, it was part of what gained traction uh, as I was just sharing it and teaching it. And, um, you know, back then when I put that stuff into print in 2012, the iGens weren't that old. And so I sort of had to try to make predictions about their spiritual question and where they were coming and now 11 like nine years later it's it feels like it's it's hitting like it's like, oh, mm. hey, thank you stress and how so they don't have to stone me yet yeah you don't have to stone the false rabbit yet so it is um yeah and so that that that's where that came out of and to create them what is the spiritual question each generation brings as their front door spiritual question and then if you don't answer their front door question they won't listen to your answers to the other questions and sort of from that developing, uh, out of that, what I was interested in is how do you show the gospel? How do you do evangelism in that space if that's their spiritual question? And then how do you develop leaders in that space if that's their spiritual question? Because their spiritual question points to their main motivation. Yeah. Yeah. And you did that in your course. You do a dynamic job of like explaining in detail each of these generational views on spirituality and those like gateway questions. Like you're saying, like, if that question isn't really addressed, you can't get to all the other questions. That's right. So, could you could you like uh, just briefly just share like those those questions those main questions for each generation that you kind of studied and, and wrote about? Sure. Yeah. The the boomers, uh, so born about forty three to sixty five four, um, they're uh, they ask what is true because they're the they're the last really truly modern generation. Xers born like that sixty four to to 84-ish, 
um, they ask what is real. They're all about authenticity, right? And if you know any like people, like what are they, 40s and 50s? <laughs> That's all we're about. We're the best BS detectors on the planet. Then millennials, so born like 81, 2, 3, 4 to 2001, 2, um, they ask what is good. And they want to know is spiritual. How does spirit, how does our faith actually contribute to the good of the world? Um, and I think iGens sort of now uh, like born what 2000, depending on who you talk to, 99 to 2003. Um, iGens ask what is beautiful, and sort of a corollary to that being what is just. What is a beautiful society? So yeah, what is boomers? What is true? Xers? What is real? Millennials? What is good? And iGens, what is beautiful? Yeah, those are, those are really, really good questions. And um, I was going to ask you, so when you look at, like, uh, Generation Alpha, like your kids coming up, like, what, what kind of spiritual question are you seeing or maybe or what you think might be emerging? Because they're, they're growing up in this time of COVID-19, seeing all the social injustice, increase in xenophobia and racism. They're, they're seeing a different world than I grew up in. And I'm kind of curious, like, as you're kind of watching this, maybe what do you kind of maybe predict or are expecting maybe this generation to be asking or be thinking about yeah, spirituality? Yeah, I, I would still probably put all those kids, like all my kids under that iGen rubric. I'm calling them iGen. Other people call okay. them Gen Z. I, I don't know if that's what you meant by Gen Alpha. I haven't heard that yet. Um, I, get, I think it's after Generation Z. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, and so where that boundary line is, not quite sure yet. Um, but you know, these are children that are raised in the crisis era, right? So uh, there's a few things that happen because of that, as their children in, in kind of every generational cycle. I I do think like old. I still think like my six year olds is going to be like tail end of iGen. But so I don't know iGen Alpha if you're talking about the generation after. Yes, but I yes. can make predictions. If it's a generation after, they should yes. be more like the boomers. And uh, there'll be a prophetic generation kind of seeking a, some form of truth or some sort of center that will guide uh, their lives, right? Um, the way the boomers did. But the generation before them, if you still put our children under iGen to some degree, um, as children of the crisis, they do still ask what is beautiful. They tend to be like people who become the experts. They're the ones who, um, and I, there's lots of stories to share. Like if you go to a birthday party now compared to like 20 years ago, it's totally different, right? Everyone just, all the bells and whistles are out these days. Cause now it's like, yeah. if, you, if someone comes over and you give them mac and cheese, people are like, you kind of looked up a recipe on the internet. <laughs> you know, that kind of business. Yeah. So the access to technology, right? they tend to do things well. And from a young age, they've got the, you know, Phones that can do quality, you know, cinema quality movies and computers that can do studio quality music. It's they're on a different level. Um, so in the place to be experts, they tend to also become, if generational theory holds, experts at process. They tend to be good government officials. They tend to be the ones who kind of, if if millennials were doers, then iGens are improvers, and they sort of take things to the nine. Mm. Um, if I Millennials were like practical, like how do we do good in the world? How do we change the world? Any message like change the world, right? Is that mid twenties to mid uh, that twenty thirty something? Right. Like that? Super exciting. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, if they're about that, the the millennials, I'm sorry, the IHNs are much more about personal fulfillment slash um, chasing the ideal. So mm-hmm. not it's it's not it's practical in one sense because they tend to be more career oriented and more risk averse. But what they're chasing is what's worthy of worship, right? In a place where they can get products that are perfect, you know, like grooming products for men. It's insane right now, right? Like if you're a hipster, plaid wearing, bearded dude, you, <laughs> all the things you can, you could spend hundreds of dollars <laughs> on this. On your beard. <laughs> you know, that terminal length, whatever. I'm Asian. I don't get the terminal length, but you know, that's how I, uh, people go to extremes. So what's the perfect life? What's the, what's the ideal life to live? Include, what's an ideal community? And of course it's inclusive, right? That's sort of the buzz today. And the, those kinds of things will will kick in, and the way it affects ministry today, right, is like um, that desire for the ideal life or ideal day kicks in so hard that they don't want to make a commitment mm. to something. Like, let's say, come to our Friday gathering, and it's Monday. Well, like, hey, I can't really commit right now because I don't know what else might show up on Friday. That could be a better thing. So if before you had FOMO, like fear of missing out, yeah, this generation yeah. is FOBO, right? Fear of better options. <laughs> <laughs> right? I like that. Just, it's hard to connect. Yeah. I got that from Mark Sayers. But like, you know, they, it's, uh, it's hard for people. We're finding one of our strategies on campus sometimes is just like make it seem spontaneous. Mm. so it's strategic and intentional but you put the chairs out on the walk and go like hey we're having bible study now come on over and like at that point it's like well i don't have anything better to do this is the better life yeah yeah that's an easier way to get people than trying to get them to commit to something ahead of time so oh that's so interesting ideal um and you know if you come to a church and they don't seem like they're trying unfortunately like artistically they're just using no one uses overheads anymore but their powerpoints are janky or something they're like i could do better on my phone i could do something right now can we work on this um i think so all that because they're experts and tend to know processes and actually are really good at being inclusive with people and how to get people along they're just super savvy that way just like the silent generation like my parents relationally savvy right um Mm. they uh i think then getting them to co-create and co-lead with you early since they're already doing it in these other spaces is key don't try to do it for them you'll never get to their level (laughs) you know involve them get them to lead it they're going to be way savvier and inclusive and helping people through than you are and how do we empower them to co-create with us since they're so good at creating and then I think because what is a beautiful society is also a just one. They will have that sense, like who's left out, who in this process, who's being marginalized, who's being, who's centered, who's not centered. Those kinds of lang- that thing will play out. And so really helping them co-lead these processes will really help any community be the kind of community that can be welcoming. So. Yeah, that's the thing. Now, for for people who are older than iGens, they 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 seem really sensitive. iGens seem like really, you know, like there's a level of uh, frustration that I think particularly Xers will feel about. <laughs> so maybe Xers, maybe Boomers. Like, are you serious? We got to go through that process too. Why don't we just make a decision? Um, but you know, really, they're so good at it 
they are going to be the kinds, they're going to be the grease to community wheels and helping it move forward, getting them involved early and often. It's usually a win. As you think about like raising your kids and I'm, I'm curious, like I like that you said, like bringing them in, like let them, let them co-own things with you. Oh, yeah. As you think about raising your kids, whether it's like projects at home, chores, or even spirituality, what are some ways that you would tell parents on how they can help to include their kids in on these different areas so that they can kind of grow and be nurtured? Oh, that's fantastic. And I am not a perfect dad. <laughs> so, you know, my, my, I can work on patience and other things. But I think one thing I do try to do and do decently is whenever I'm doing something, there's an invitation. So, um, like if I'm fixing a speaker or set, like I got, to, I just tried to fix my speakers, then I'll bring my son over and just anybody who's willing to be with me, I'll give them the job that they can handle. Like if it's just unscrewing something, go for it. If it's something more, go for it. If it's holding something while I'm soldering, that's there. Um, so and what's neat is, so my son, my oldest has some spiritual sensitivities and leadership. And so he, he helped plant a ministry at his middle school before the pandemic really right and they had like 30 people showing up each week it was awesome um, wow so and he has these kinds of verbal gifts like i saw him speak in front of the school board and so i'm there right at a rep fifth grade representative this is three years ago he was the representative for a school to speak in front of the school board so i, I went with him and as he's going up i go dude ice where's your notes he goes don't need them pops and just goes up, <laughs> what? Extemporaneously tells a joke, has the board laughing, and then, you know, has them going. I have parents turning, leaning to me, like, you got a special one there, you know, like, <laughs> so he's got something there. Um, so when uh, one rhythm we had before the pandemic was uh, we would serve at a soup kitchen about once a month or once every five, six weeks. And I just, you know, again, have the kids involved. They're serving. We're doing this together. We're not solving all their problems, but it's just a way to love, right? Uh, yeah. It was my turn to give a devotion. Um, oh, oh, actually, anytime I'm there, they want me to give the devotion. So great. I love it. Most, the scariest audience for me, right? Because I'm super aware of my privilege. <laughs> I'm trying not to preach a message that's middle class to people, like, won't sound like good news. But it's been great. There's been a rapport and it's mm. really been fun. Um, and I hope they're, you know, I'm helping. But at one point I was about to give it, but my son had, had prepared a devotional that he couldn't give because there was a scheduling mix up at his middle school group. So I just go, Ice, I let him know ahead of time. They're like, but not much, like about 30 minutes ahead. I was like, you're going to give the devotion today. And he goes, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah, go for it, man. And he gave the devotion to like 40 homeless folks. What? Fifteen volunteers from our church. Beautiful! Wow! And he banged it. You know, he was nervous and there, but oh. all the see the best part of that then is then you've got our the friends who live outside as well as our church people coming up to him afterward and going like, "Great talk, so helpful." You know, like giving him all kinds of encouragement oh. because he's thirteen, right? So they're gonna do that. And what's that gonna do for my son? Like, oh, I can contribute, right? Like I I've got a place in the kingdom. And that's, if I can just shift my kids mm. from being consumers to being people who contribute, right? Then I feel like they're mm. closer. They're closer to what this kingdom's about. Um, so I'm just looking for that. They still consume. There's still things they do, but 
as much as I can try to bring them into my world or my thinking or creating with me. So like, yeah. And that's true. Even with family rhythms, we have a family meeting (laughs) or family meeting. Whereas because we're so critical of each other, the first half is just encouragements, like no criticism. Everyone gets encouragement from everyone. And then the second half is working through rhythm. So mom and I think you guys are playing too many video games. You guys want to play more. Can we talk about a good schedule that will work for us? Right. And we just start to bring them in. But we're thinking this, we're thinking that in that way, just help them co-create the rhythms so they can own some of them as well. And they're, they're thoughtful, right? And they know what we want. They know they scream about what they want. But we have to learn to listen to each other to get to a place where we're getting there. And it's helpful for me and Ginny to learn to listen to our kids. <laughs> we need that rhythm too. <laughs> so it's, uh, it doesn't always work out, but a lot of times that helps us get to some place that we all own, less fighting when we actually enforce. So. We, we're still looking for ways. If we can do it together and they're contributing to it, they'll also not only get a chance to co-create with us, they'll probably own it more. I love that. And I, I feel so bad. We're like already up at our hour, but I wanted to ask you one one other question about your kids because right now with the amount of specifically anti-Asian racism that started at the beginning of COVID, and I'm just wondering, wondering like, what advice would you get, give for parents who have children of color? Um, as we're seeing increase in racism during this time and oh, violence, yeah, yeah. Um, how to parent and be there for our kids. Yeah, it, it, it can be a scary time, especially if we just let them watch the news a lot. Um, it's a great question. I hope we're doing a good job at it, particularly as an Asian parent, as a minority in this country. There's two extremes that I'm trying to avoid, right? So one is like ethnic pride, everyone else sucks, which Koreans can do. <laughs> well, you know, we have a, a joke of being the Joseon gener- chosen generation, but there's also a Joseon dynasty, so you can pun it and yeah, we're chosen. Um, but then there's the other extreme where we get into like a, a self-deprecating, you know, our ethnicity is like in the way. And so then to avoid that kind of victim mentality, the ways we'll cope with that is either we wallow in it or we just avoid our ethnic identity altogether. So we're trying to hold this between the the ethnocentrism and the self-deprecation. How do we create a healthy ethnic identity that's woven into faith? Um, and I just think that's true. I think that's part of identity that uh, we don't let the ethnic markers tr- sort of take over our spiritual identity but it informs it you know every you know the cultural background of every character in the bible every major character in the bible and if you don't know they'll tell you uriah the hittite right like they're gonna they're gonna let you know it's a it's a key part of of our story and how we engage the bigger story of god so um i think in that way then i want them to know that their heritage is good and so we'll do things that are like pro Korean and so they'll have different things, but just allowing the culture to have its place and to say that God didn't make a mistake when he made us Korean Americans. Um, and then second from there to say like, if people, I think we just need a base there to say how God created us wasn't a mistake. So then we can address, but see there's broken people and people are saying lots of crazy stuff. It doesn't define us, doesn't define who we are, but it's out there. So how how would we respond the way Jesus would want us to respond? 
because we could get judgy in this house a little bit. Uh, so we have to figure <laughs> sure. out how to how to navigate that. Um, so it's conversations and at different stages of their lives. We've been pretty, what we have been active about is saying that ethnic identity matters. And I think that's true, whether you're white or Native American or black or Latino, whatever that is, whatever is your story, like, are there ways that we can allow God to help us glory in the parts of the story we're supposed to and, uh, and not get just stuck in a rut? So um, we we tried to be that. And, oh, actually, so there's, there's this um, book on parenting by Bro Bronson. Bronson. I can see the cover, this egg. We'll have to look it up somewhere. But each chapter is like based on research. It's sort of like a Malcolm Gladwell take-ish on parenting. And it takes like a, based on data, sort of a counterintuitive idea, and then sort of then makes it accessible. And in one of their chapters on race, they basically say, do you want to raise a racist kid? You know what's the best way to raise a racist kid? is don't talk about race with them. Just don't talk about race or ethnicity until they're nine years old. Because at nine years old, their views on race and ethnicity harden. And if you're not bringing stuff up with them, they're learning it on the side, right? So they know the difference between Asian and black, unless they can't, you know, they really, they'll know the difference. So if you don't help them and be explicit about that difference, then, um, explicit about the differences and what's the same and what is the difference then they grow up more racist which is just flies in the face of like the way most white liberal parents will raise their kids like there is no race there's no ethnicity we just we see each other right. the same right they, um no you have to bring it up and you have to go like you know our puerto rican neighbors right like they love they either love jesus as much as we do or they there's nothing about them that's inherently less than us and there's nothing about us it's inherently more than them it's you have to actually be explicit and say it for them to get it um and so i i think more than anything is bring it let it be there don't push it down if someone if your kid says something racist don't like just jump all over them and say like that's racist don't talk about race in front of people that's just racist to do that you're gonna it creates a complex and then they don't know where how to talk about these things it's again, it's just a place for us to, to talk through that. Um, and if you want a sort of a biblical lens on ethnic identity, I can't recommend uh, enough a book called Beyond Colorblind by Sarah Shin. She was one of my old students, former university staff, so I, oh. I love it. And she takes basically our gospel, the way we show the gospel in university, the big story, and then helps see ethnic identity through that lens. So how is our ethnic identity created for good, damaged by evil, um, uh, restored for better and sent together to heal. And how do you, how does ethnic identity help us do that? And I do think the more we own our ethnic identity, the more we'll be equipped to do racial reconciliation and justice work in the future. And that if we don't address it in ourselves, then we're just, we'll usually either make up, make a mess or, uh, right, we may end up making a mess. There's no or. Uh, owning where we're coming from. It's the self-awareness with the ethnic lens in our leadership, which will help us become more multi-ethnic and agents of justice and reconciliation uh, when called to it. Thank you so much for listening to this discussion with Dr. James Chung on generational views of spirituality and ways to help parent this next generation. 
I was super encouraged learning from Dr. Chung, and I would love to know what you thought. You can reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at Delgado Podcast. And you can also find the podcast notes and video from today's conversation at MikeDelgado.org. Reverend Dr. James Chung serves as Vice President of Strategy and Innovation, overseeing evangelism, discipleship, multi-ethnic initiatives, and the Cradle Labs at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. He is also an ordained minister and wrote several books, including True Story, A Christianity Worth Believing In, and its follow-up, Real Life, A Christianity Worth Living Out. James wrote his doctoral dissertation on postmodern leadership development at Fuller Theological Seminary. He received his MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and studied management science and marketing at MIT. You can learn more about him by going to his website at jameschung.net. That's James Chung, spelled C-H-O-U-N-G dot net. Next time, we get a chance to learn from Dr. Mark Glanville and Dr. Luke Glanville about their new book entitled Refuge Reimagined, a book that deals with the biblical ethic of kinship in ways the church should think about and care for displaced people, especially the refugees and immigrants in our own communities. I was super encouraged by their compassion and their biblical exegesis on how scripture reveals a God who cares for displaced people in ways the church can be more helpful in this important spiritual work. So that's next time. And if you found this show helpful, please consider rating this show on iTunes. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.